maybe you walked in and are wondering uh, on the bulletin cover, you saw that for Advent this year, which is the four weeks before Christmas, as we uh, prepare, Advent just means kind of arrival, and so as we prepare for the coming of the King of Kings, why we call the Advent conspiracy. What comes to your mind when you think of conspiracy? Anybody, shout it out. What comes to your mind? Conspiracy. What? Election. Okay, like, all right, we won't go into that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Did somebody hack something, right? Uh, yeah, good one. Thanks for bringing up the most possible controversial thing, Harold. <laughs> Trying to get me in trouble. Uh, what else? Conspiracy. What? Sneaky rumors. What did you say over here? Area 51. Yes. Yes. Right? When I was in middle school, our class would go to the library. And I was just remembering this the other day. I was deeply bored with the library. Um, except this one section. So there's this book on Bigfoot. And now you might be being like, do you know Bigfoot's real? He's the real thing, right? The Yeti, the abominable snowman, right? These things, they're, they're... But anyhow, I loved the idea that there might out there be some mysterious creature who just like somehow after all these years was able to dodge like cameras except for that one shot. <laughs> they, they got him this one time, but like since then, we haven't been able to find him, right? Conspiracies. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about Advent or the arrival of, of the coming of the king in, in that kind of conspiracy. We're talking about a conspiracy in the sense of a group of people who have gathered and are plotting together an overthrow. Okay, I'll say it one more time in case you missed it. We're not talking about like Harry and the Hendersons. We're talking about a bunch of people who came together and they're conspiring to overthrow the powers that be. We're talking Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia rebelling against the evil empire. We're talking about the resistance movement in World War II. Some of you maybe had relatives. I know I had a great uncle who would print off these newspapers telling people the real story about what was happening in the Netherlands, about what what was really happening with their Jewish neighbors because there was so much false news we're talking about that kind of conspiracy. A group of people who have gathered together and the message that they have is, here's kind of a big word, subversive. It's trying to overthrow something. It's revolution. Okay? And this is really hard this time of year. Um, and it's, it, we think of Christmas, and I, I don't want to like diss this, okay, because we think of Christmas and often the, the message is like it's a season of comfort. Like we love to be comfortable. I love to be comfortable. I have this amazing blanket that I got for like eleven ninety five at Target, I think. And when I, when I put it over me, it's like, so, I don't know how they got it so soft, but it's like amazingly soft. Anybody here have a Snuggie and dare to confess to it right now? All right, yeah, a Snuggie. Snuggies are great, right? But how awkward would it be if right now on stage I was wearing a Snuggie? I totally wanted to buy one and just like have somebody come slip it on. And so I would like preach in a Snuggie. You'd be like, this is so, so weird. Okay, because too much comfort can be bad. Right? 
Too much comfort can be a bad thing. Like an hour nap in your lazy boy is great, but if you're there for like seven days, that's too long. Do you agree with me? Can too much comfort be bad? Okay, when we read the story of Christmas, what we have to understand is that it's much more conspiracy than it is comfortable. It's comforting, like the prophet Isaiah says, comfort, comfort, my people. It's comforting to those who are struggling in distress because the message is God is with us. But Christmas isn't to the early readers of this, to those who were hearing this message first. It wasn't a comfortable story. It was a conspiratorial one. And so that's why with this um, group, this collective of people, we've joined this year in this thing called the Advent Conspiracy. I'm wondering this morning, will you guys, are, are, are you willing to join me in this? You willing to join me this morning in the Advent Conspiracy? Nod your head if you're in. Tell your neighbor, I think I'm in. We are about to over, we're talking about overthrow. Ephesians 6 says this. There are rulers and powers and principles and authorities, right? There, there are things unseen, and that is what our battle is against. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against these, like, undercurrents in our culture. And sometimes those undercurrents, those things, get revealed. Like Loch Ness Monster. Every once in a while, he pops his head out. Maybe. Every once in a while, these things pop their head up. And I, I want to say that I think this time of year in our culture, there's a particular undercurrent that, poked, that pokes, pokes his head up. There's a particular thing that becomes more and more visible that I think we have to ask some serious questions about. I think if we're serious about Matthew's testimony about who Jesus is, then you and I got to ask some questions that are kind of conspiratorial because they're about overthrowing this power that exists. Are you with me? All right. Let's turn to Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read two verses, and then I'm going to stop and comment, and then I'm going to read six verses, and then I'm going to stop and comment, and then I'm going to read the last four verses and then give um, kind of like a, a challenge to you at the end. All right? Can you hang with me till like 11.30? We got like up here a little bit late. So it's like 11, 11, is that okay? Like 19 minutes, you good with that? All right, 11.30, we'll have you out, okay? So here's the deal. Matthew is writing at a time, we think about 50, in between 50 and 100 AD. We're not sure exactly when it was, but in between 50 and 100 AD, which those of you who are historians will know that's after the time that, that Christ has passed away. And what's happening in uh, Judea in this time is that Rome has... Uh, is in control. And they have dispersed the powers that be in Jerusalem and kind of forced everybody north. They, they had a special deal with the Jews. And they said, we'll let you practice your religion if you pay this particular tax. And so the Jewish people for, for decades and decades did this. But then there came this point in this clash between Rome, the power that existed, and the Jewish people, about the six million, seven million of them, they said, we don't want to pay this tax anymore. And so there was this revolution, revolt, and a lot of the Jews fled north to the Galilee. Their temple was destroyed in about 70 AD, and their religious leaders were dispersed. And so this is where you get like the whole rabbi tradition. It's kind of this underground movement trying to 
continue to practice the commands of God and the testimony of Christ. It's an underground movement. Matthew is telling his story to people that are kind of underground, all right? They're in this, uh, they're not in power. They're, they're not in with the political ruler. They, they don't have the influence of, um, you know, the, the people in strength, in power, okay? They're coming from this place of weakness, and he's telling this story about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who'd been promised to Jewish people. And we know that he's writing to Jewish people a whole bunch of reasons. Um, one of them, he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. That's because as an observant Jew, Matthew wouldn't use the, the language of God. He wouldn't say that name. It's an unutterable name. So he wouldn't say, he just called it kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. Matthew uses something like 62 references to the Old Testament Okay, so he's not writing to people who aren't familiar with the story of God up to this point. And what he's trying to say is, hey, people, check it out. The one, the king, he already came. He was here among us. And you'll find him in the person of Jesus. And so chapter one, he gives this genealogy of why Jesus is a king and and his origins and where he's come from. In chapter two, he wants to tell the story of his birth, okay? Now, there's lots of stories about birth stories of rulers in this time. Caesar, who's the the king of of this entire empire, also has a story. It's a story that involves a star. It's a story that involves a virgin birth. It's a story that involves people visiting him. It's a story, and so what Matthew is trying to say, everything you think you know about the powers that be that exist in this world and the reasons they give why you ought to bow down to them, don't. Because here's the real king, and he's going to come in a way that you do not expect him. Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod. Now, if you're hearing this in the first century, the bells and whistles are just going off right now. King Herod, we'll talk about him in a minute. Magi, Magi, which is, you know, looks like our word magic, right? Comes from the, the Greek magios. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. A quick word about the Magi. It's important that we understand some of the biblical language. Again, whenever you hear about the east in the text, the east was the place associated um, with not good things. When Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, they're sent east. And so like any good American road film, you always want to be going west. California. Not Michigan. That's where I'm from. You want to be heading west. That's where the movement of God is. And so Matthew is trying to say from the start, these people, these, these wise men, these whatever you want to call them, some people think they were like scientists, astronomers, um, sorcerers. We're not really sure. We don't know a ton about them other than they're incredibly like mystical. They're, they're really interesting. They're not the kind of people you would expect to come visit the king of the world. You would expect to see the religious leaders, the church folk. You would expect them to be there, but, but they're not. The first ones that, that we get in Matthew who've come are these magi. Verse three. When King Herod 
heard this, when he heard that they had come, why did they come? Verse 2, to worship him, they said, right? We have come to worship him. We have come to lay ourselves down before this king. When the king Herod, verse 3, heard this, he was disturbed, underline this in your text, and all Jerusalem with him. Underline that. We'll talk about it in a minute. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Right? Conspiratorial, if you're the Roman Empire. There's this ruler coming. And then Herod, he called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Verse 8, last one. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me this line, so that I too may go worship him. A couple things about Herod. Why did I have you underline that in verse 4 when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law? Sorry, verse 3. He was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. What's going on there? Well, the conspiracy, they sniff it out. Herod, the power in that area who had been given this area, this kingdom, essentially, by Rome, he had been put in power there by Rome. Herod smells conspiracy. And the reason that he's disturbed and all the leaders with him and all Jerusalem, Matthew wants you to know it's, it's all the religious leaders, is because they're in his pocket. Why? Well, he built them this amazing temple. He's giving them special privileges. Rome is allowing them to practice their religion. So Rome has essentially said, hey, as long as you don't pose any threat to us and keep paying us your taxes, you can believe whatever you want. You can practice whatever religion you want. You can, you, as long as it doesn't impact us, go ahead. You can have your faith. As long as it doesn't have any impact on us, go for it. Keep doing it. Because you're continuing to make our empire rich. Now here's the thing about Herod. Um, Caesar Augustus said about him, I would rather be his pig than his son. Right? Man, I'd rather be bacon. I'd rather be bacon than be his kid. Why is that? Well, Herod had a number of his sons killed because he was afraid. Because Herod was obsessed with this idea of accumulation. He was well known in the ancient world. He's one of the greatest builders of his time. He built an entire port in Judea that that was incredibly important because it's this area of massive trade. It's where all these things come together. And Herod built this port. He rebuilt the temple, which is like what David and Solomon did. And, and he, he had a number of palaces, including this one that was a mountain. Now hear me. He built a mountain for himself. And in the, on that mountain was a tower. And guess who stayed at the very top of the tower? Herod. Guess what that tower was called? Herod's Tower, the Herodian. So he lives in a tower named after himself, about four miles from Bethlehem, visible to the people in that region. You with me? You getting a feel for what kind of person he is? His wife, Miriam, one, one of his wives, he was like obsessed with, he loved her deeply. How many of you, bachelor? Don't raise your hand. Um, his wife, Miriam, was uh, his favorite. He loved her. If you're thinking like bachelor, of all his wives, she was the one that got the rose. 
He loved her. It was upset, like the historian Josephus talks about Herod's love for Miriam. But here's the problem. It wasn't reciprocated. She didn't love him back. Mostly because Herod had appointed her brother-in-law, Aristobulus, which is a fantastic name if you're with child and thinking about naming a son. Aristobulus, at 17, became the high priest in the temple, and people loved him. And he was great, and he became popular, and he was influential. And guess what Herod did because of that? He's threatened, right? Hey, people like him, and oh, they're supposed to like me. I'm the one. And so Herod had Aristobulus drowned, which if you're looking for a way to bless your wife this Christmas, drowning her brother-in-law that she loves is not a good thing. Okay, so she's like, you're crazy. He's like, I know, I have to kill you too. And he kills a number of his sons. And Caesar's like, yeah, I'd rather be a pig. Because Herod's not really Jewish. He's partially Jewish. He'd actually become Jewish. He's from Idumea, which is an area um, we might have heard the language of Edomites before. Edomites are descendants of Esau. And if you know anything in your history, Jacob and Esau we're warring brothers. Jacob is the one who becomes Israel, i.e. the people of God. And Esau and Edom are never fully a part of, of this deal. Herod is an Edomite. All right? So I'm just telling you all this because I think Herod is, when you think about like what is the force that, um, that, that manifests this time of year, what's that thing that I was talking about? I think it's embodied in, in Herod. Because Herod... Though he had everything, it was never enough. It was never enough. He was always reaching for more and trying to expand and trying to conquer. And people hated him for it. He had at one point 10,000 men, 10,000 men conscripted for 10 years to build the walls of the temple. And I'm guessing the pay back then wasn't that great. So he ruined anybody that threatened him. He destroyed them. He was incredibly insecure. And he never had enough. And I think this is the the spirit that can manifest itself at this time. Despite having everything. It's not always enough. Herod embodies what I like to call the kingdom of more. We gotta have more. More, more, more. More relationship, a little bit better grade. More friends, more likes on Facebook, a few more Instagram likes, whatever. Whatever your thing is. A little more money, a little more security, a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. That gets embodied this time of year, doesn't it? How many of you are with me? You're like, come on, man, leave me alone. I got sat next to, on Thanksgiving, the sweet potato meat, the, the dish. It has like marshmallows, brown sugar. You know what I'm talking about? You know this dish? It's evil. It's so delicious. There was two of them. The one ranked number one on my rankings of food. The other one was number four. But the one had candied pecans on top of it. So I scooped it up. I sat literally right next to it. I could reach it. And I had some. And I was like, that was good. I got to have some more. So I had two. And then I had five. And at this point, it's time for the fat pants, right? 
Like put some sweats on, on but maybe don't even tie them. Just like wear them so that I can say, yeah, I'm wearing pants. Because more, more, more. But you know what I felt afterwards was a little bit ill. This time of year, man, I mean, I'm telling you, this impulse, the, the impulse of Herod for more is really, really significant. We sit around and we go, I wish my spouse was a little bit more this or more that, or I wish my kids were a little more this or more that, or I wish I was a little more this or more that, or I wish we had a little more of this or a little more of that. The kingdom of more flows out of this idea of scarcity. Scarcity says there isn't enough. There's not enough for everyone. For Herod, this meant that he had to continue to destroy anybody who seemed like a threat to him acquiring stuff, accumulating things. And if you don't think this is what Matthew is trying to say about Herod, read the rest of Matthew. He's obsessed with this idea that wealth and the pursuit of things he says at one point, it's like, um, it's like a, a farmer sowing seed. And the seed is like the gospel, the good news that God is enough. And, and Matthew says, uh, he's, he's quoting Jesus, at one point it falls on some soil and it grows up for a moment, but it gets choked out. And his disciples say, well, what chokes it out? What's the thing that, that strangles the ability of God's work in our life to grow? And Jesus says, it's the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of more. The idea that I just had more. Then I could rest. Then I could find peace. Then I might worship God. Then I might confess that he is Lord. If I just had a little more, a little bit better grade, a little bit better career, a little bit more of this or that or the other thing. Scarcity leads us to this. How many of you went out for Black Friday? Like, seriously, it's not a, I'm not trying to judge you. And also, like, if you're right now like, oh my goodness, I have to go shopping after church, and now I feel so guilty, that's not at all what I'm trying to do, okay? I'm not trying to, like, make you live with perpetual guilt about, like, buying your loved one a, you know, cheese ball or something. But this is ultimately the fruit of Herod's kingdom, the idea that there's not enough. This literally is what happens. When there's not enough, I have to get mine. Notice the lady in the middle? She's like, I don't even want one. I want two. I will have my 40-inch, what is it, 40-inch full HD LED. By the way, I hope nobody knows any of these folks. <laughs> like, that's my cousin in Cleveland. Oh, my goodness. That'd be... This is that, that Loch Ness monster. When that spirit, that underlying force of, of greed and the need to have more when it's manifest, most evilly, I think this is what it looks like. I love the guy here on the left, too. Check him out. The second one from the left. He's just like, I'm going to end up in this picture and it's going to go viral. And oh my goodness, how great is this moment right here, right? The poor lady with like the hand in her face is just like, oh no, I wish I wouldn't have come. I wish I would have just waited till Cyber Monday and ordered it online. But this idea, friends, I, I'm, 
I'm opposed to anything. I'm opposed to, we're, as a community, we're opposed to anything that we see destroying people's lives. And I think one of the things that creates fear and anxiety in us is this message that you're not enough, that Jesus isn't enough. The opposite of being driven by scarcity is being driven by this idea of the abundance of God, the abundant goodness and love and mercy of God. Matthew, two chapters, sorry, four chapters later in Matthew 6. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 6, 25. Oh, I gotta get going here. So, Matthew 6, 25, I just want you to hear this. Matthew says, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you wear is not your life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns and yet our heavenly father feeds them. When's the last time you saw a pigeon planting a crop? You didn't, right? When's the last time you saw like a, a finch like compiling a whole bunch of seeds in like a corner somewhere? I don't think they do that, right? And Jesus is saying, hey, if, if God provides for them, how much more won't he provide for you? Paul in, in Romans 8 said, if he gave you his son, how will he not also give you all things? He gave you his own kid. Do you really wonder if he's good? If he's going to provide, you might have to wait. It might not be this very moment. My daughter asked me, can I watch another Netflix? And I say, no, not right now. No more right now. It's going to make you sick. You keep pressing play. Play. Netflix is amazing, but I mean, come on. More, 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 right? No, not right now. Maybe tomorrow or the next day or the next day. And, And Matthew wants us to know, that God has been abundantly good in Jesus. That he has fulfilled this promise from long ago. How much more won't he continue to give us all things? Last verses here. Verse 9. After they had heard the king... After they had heard, this is the wise men, heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So the creation even proclaims, this is the one. Right? The creation says, here he is. Here's the deal. This is what we're all pointing to. All of creation pointing to him. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, And they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, don't go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route, route, or route. Right? They, they don't go back to Herod, this idea of, of the kingdom of acquisition and wealth and power and towers. They go to the manger They say, you know, God is enough. This is enough. He is enough. This prophecy fulfilled is enough. I had never thought about it till this week, the phrase, enough 
is enough. You ever thought about that? Enough is enough. This Advent, I'm wondering if you'd join me in this conspiracy. It's where we proclaim enough is enough. God has redeemed us and loved us and equipped us and given us himself in all things. Here's what we're asking as a community you to think about. What would it look like for you to spend less? Maybe initially you go to money. Maybe it's just energy. Maybe it's less worry, less fear, less anxiety. Spend less of all that. Spend less of the kingdom of Herod. Pastor Scott challenged us last week to give more of our presence. Presence with a C, not a T. Presence. Your presence is your present. Right? To spend less. To give more. To worship fully. To give your heart to God this time of year and say, this is enough. Lord, that you have my heart. You have my heart. And then finally, to love all. To watch as you give your heart to God and worship him fully. Him love others through you in ways that you never imagined. How great a Christmas wouldn't that be as a community if we gather together to spend less, to give more, to worship fully and to love all. That's the conspiracy, friends. That's the countercultural, subversive thing that we're a part of doing. Story and then I'll let you leave. This week I got a text from somebody who said they have a tradition in their family and they, they get together as a family and they have a certain amount of money and it, I think it, he said it was from his um, grandpa who used to do this. And they take and they set that, that aside. And as a family, they kind of do like this secret thing. But they, they give it to someone who needs it right now. And I know there are people in our community, as Nate mentioned, we have this benevolence account and, and so many of you give so faithfully to this. It's a beautiful thing. And they, they spend a little less and they give a little bit more and they, they don't ask for their name to be connected to it. They just give it. And I was thinking about it this week. Is like, that's so exciting to think about being a part of something like that. To say, you know what? God and Jesus has given us all things. That In Acts 2, it said the people of God, they shared everything. They had it all in common. Nobody held onto it and was like, put their name on a tower. Nobody put their name on it. So they just said, you know what? It's all God's. I'm just a steward of this thing because he's given me everything. wonder what it would look like as a community. We spent a little less. We gave a little more. We worshiped fully. And we committed to loving everyone. Will you pray with me? God, we remember our friends again this morning. We remember our friends this morning who, who haven't heard about your great love for them, who maybe because of their situation are, are just like, God, just need to see it again, need to experience your presence in their life. The scriptures reveal that you're a God who stands with us, the brokenhearted. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So we pray for more and more grace, Lord. We pray for your love the love that we see in Jesus, the love that we experience this time of year. We pray that your love would be enough. We come to worship you. We come to give you praise. We come to adore you as the king of our lives. We celebrate 
your presence among us, God with us this morning. In Jesus' name.